Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 today. So Mark chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word today. Give ear to the reading of God's Word. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of man of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this your word that you give us. And we ask even today as we are so dependent upon you to teach us from your word that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For we ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, my original plan, uh, you know, you know how, what they say about plans, man makes plans and God laughs, was to, uh, was to preach through the entire first 13 verses of Mark 9 as one unit. And by the time I was done working on my sermon, I realized I'd gotten through about verse 8 and would have had to leave these last uh, number of verses almost un, uh, undealt with. And I thought, that, that can't be right. So discretion being the, the better part of valor, I thought, well... I guess God wants us in two parts. So this is, you could, you could think of this as the transfiguration part two of sorts. Um, what we see here in, in these verses is uh, kind of a follow-up, or maybe a better way of putting it would be a debriefing of the three disciples on the transfiguration of Christ. They've seen this great vision of Christ in his glory, Peter, James, and John had done in verses 1 through 8. They've seen Christ transfigured before them and saw a glimpse of his glory, they saw Elijah and Moses with Jesus talking to him, and they saw this cloud, this, uh, presumably the glory cloud of God's presence, and on top of it all, as if that weren't enough, they heard the voice of God the Father out of that cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. Verse 7. Now despite the fact that if you remember, if you read the text, if you were here last week, uh, despite the fact that, that Mark tells us that they were terrified Terrified, not just in awe, not just amazed, not just wow, can't wait to tell my friends. Terrified by this vision of Christ's glory, this little preview of Christ's glory. Um, it would be kind of hard for us to overstate or exaggerate the privilege that they had to be there. They didn't draw the short straw, even though they were afraid of what they saw. This was a great honor and a great privilege that they, that, that they would all refer to later on. Peter referred to it in his writings uh, himself uh, later on. And, and so it's, it's a, it, this was a, a bigger deal than we often sometimes consider and, and think. But uh, think about this, this privilege. You know, what does it remind you of from your Old Testament? The fact that Moses was there during this, this vision uh, should be a hint. They, they are not unlike Moses, Peter, James, and John, getting to go up to the top of the mountain to meet with God and hear God speak. The only difference is, Moses, when he got to come down the mountain, what did he get to do? 
His job was to, thus saith the Lord, and then when he was done speaking, he put the veil back over his face, so the glory that was still kind of shining on his face and reflecting of, of God's glory until it was faded away. Well, uh, if, if you look at verse 9 there, uh, we see something a little bit different. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one. Kind of, kind of different than what Moses got to do. Tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Seems odd, doesn't it? You'd think. He, you know, he's kind of letting them see, getting a sneak peek of his glory, getting to see and hear these great, amazing things. And then on the way back down the mountain, you, know, you have to think that even though they don't get what they just saw, and they might still be a little afraid and, and shaken by it, the first thing they probably thought to do was, well, I can't wait to tell the other nine. At least them. You know, look what we got to see and you didn't. I mean, you're kind of glad you, maybe you didn't get to, to see it because you would have been afraid of it like we were. But he forbids them to say anything about it, at least for a time, until a particular time after he had risen from the dead. Why, why is that? It seemed, you know, we, we see these same themes coming up again over and over in the Gospel of Mark. You see uh, Jesus doing a miracle or, or teaching something or both. You see uh, this, this repetition of the idea of the, the, the disciples having a hard time understanding what they saw or heard. They're a little slow uh, in, in understanding and in believing what, they, what they're being taught and what they're seeing. And I think that's, that's a thing that we're going to see in our text here. Look at, at what he says in verse 10. It says, So they kept the matter, this thing, to themselves. In other words, Jesus told them not to say anything, and so they didn't. Uh, they kept the matter to themselves. And then he adds, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. It's, here we go again. Now they're, they're not quite grasping what he's telling them. They're, they're obeying what they understand. But the, you, know, you can almost picture the conversation coming down the hill. Jesus might be a little ahead of them out of earshot, and they're whispering to each other, what's all this rising from the dead stuff? You know, what, what is he talking about? We just saw him in glory. Uh, that, that would imply he's going to die. How, how would that possibly happen, that he would die and have to rise from the dead? So, you know, they're, they're, they're understanding partly and they're misunderstanding the rest. But we see the slowness of the disciples again, even Peter, James, and John, to understand what Jesus had been telling them. We pointed out a couple weeks ago that, that in chapters 8, 9, and 10, one after the other, Mark includes, uh, you know, a section or a, or a statement kind of summarizing Jesus over and over and over again, telling them about his sufferings, his rejection at the hands of his own people, his death, and his resurrection. We see that back in chapter 8, verse 31, where it says, He began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And in verse 32 he says, And he said this, what? Plainly, plainly, he's trying to be as clear as he possibly can to the disciples about what kind of Christ he came to be, what they should expect as they're following him as the Christ. Well, it partly is probably due to the slowness of their, of their minds to understand, but we see the same thing again in a text that we haven't gotten to yet, but in, in chapter 9, verse 30, uh, 31, same, second verse, same as the first, right? He says, the Son of Man, telling the disciples, the Son of Man 
is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And then he does much the same thing in the very next chapter, chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. I'll leave you to look that one up on your own. But think about that right in the middle of Mark's gospel, sort of starting in the middle in chapter 8. One chapter after another after another, Mark highlights for us that Jesus was telling them these things basically over and over and over again. He's trying to make sure that they understand what is about to happen to him as, as the Christ. Now think about it. You know, it's easy to give the disciples a hard time. It's easy to kind of pick on them. But um, you know, think about what they just saw. Think about what they just heard. Think about who they just saw Jesus with and, and, and their conditions in which they saw them. They saw Jesus Christ in glory. Before his glorification, they got to see it, a preview of, of, of coming attractions. They got to see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his departure, talking about his death. They got to hear the voice of God the Father. I mean, who, that, that's a pretty rare group that got to hear that in their, earthly, in their earthly life. And then after seeing all that, they have to think about Jesus being killed. You can, you can forgive, I think, a little bit of misunderstanding or difficulty in understanding thinking about the idea of Jesus being killed when you just saw him in glory and when you just saw Moses and Elijah with them. For Jesus to speak of his resurrection from the dead presupposes that he had to die first. And death is probably the last thing that was on their mind when they saw the transfiguration of Christ. It would have been difficult for us to grasp too. We're not much different than them. And so at least a part of the reason why Jesus forbade them from speaking of what they had seen and, and, and heard, at least for a time, uh, was that they, they didn't yet grasp his mission as the Messiah, that he had to go to the cross to save his people from their sins, that glory was not the next thing. He wasn't going to, even though we think of the triumphal entry, and it seems all glorious, you know, people, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, he wasn't going to ascend the, the earthly throne of Jerusalem and overthrow Rome or anything of the sort anytime, anytime soon. So if for these men at this time, Peter, James, and John, to start telling other people, even the other disciples about the glory of Christ, apart from the cross, would lead to nothing but confusion and misunderstanding. So for a time, he doesn't say you can't ever tell them. He says you can't tell anybody until after the resurrection, because after the resurrection, then they'll finally understand what he was talking about. Well, we're going to see at least three things from our text, all having to do, strangely enough, maybe to our ears, with the prophet Elijah. When you think of the Gospels, you probably don't think of Elijah first and foremost, or Moses for that matter. But we're going to see first the question of the disciples about Elijah, their question, the return, secondly, the return of Elijah, what they were asking about. And lastly, we're going to see what the sufferings of Christ, what Elijah has to do with that. Well, the first thing we see in our text is the question of the disciples. Now, technically, if you look at the text, they kind of had two questions, didn't they? And they asked each other the first one and didn't ask that one to Jesus. You know, what's this whole resurrection thing thing about? What is what they asked themselves, each other maybe, what this rising from the dead might mean? Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead. Doesn't that mean he's going to rise from the dead? That's probably not really why they're asking. They're, they're probably thinking, 
They can't imagine him dying, so how could he possibly have to raise himself or be raised from the dead? Now, why didn't they ask Jesus? That seems like the natural thing to do. They ask him about everything else. When they don't understand what rising from the dead might mean, why didn't they ask Jesus? Maybe they were afraid to ask him. Maybe they were tired of one too many times not feeling like they understood what was going on and didn't want to be embarrassed to ask Whatever the case, they, they must have been self-conscious about it. The slowness of their hearts to believe and understand this thing that you see all through the Gospel of Mark up to this point, uh, you know, they probably had some grasp of that, 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 they, that they weren't picking things up very quickly and maybe they didn't want to ask him that. But what do they ask Jesus? Look at verse 11. It says, they, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, I don't know about you, but when I first was looking at this text, in preparation for, for the last couple of sermons in, in this part of the chapter, it, it felt like a, a non sequitur to me. It felt like that's the question they want to ask him? Uh, of all the things they could ask Jesus coming down the mountain, the one that they think of is, hey, you know, the scribes have been telling us about this thing about Elijah coming back. What's the deal? What's the deal with that? Why did they ask about Elijah? Of all the things they could have asked, why why Elijah? Well, you know, the obvious comes to mind. Who did they just see up on the top of the mountain? Moses and Elijah during the time of Christ's transfiguration. Now, their question to our ears, maybe this is how it feels to you when you're reading it. It might seem um, kind, of, kind of abrupt. It might seem like a, a kind of an awkward change of subject. Which, you know, if you just had a, a, a moment like they had and you, you were scared out of your minds, you know, it said, you know, Peter didn't know what to say, for they were, they were afraid. They were terrified, right? And so what did Peter say? Hey, this is great. Let's make three tents, and you guys can get in and hide so we don't have to see your glory and scare us, you know, kind of thing. That's, that's my interpretation of that anyway. You know, is this more of the same? Is this Peter, you know, coming down the mountain, knees still kind of knocking together, and, uh, hey, how's the weather? You know, hey, I heard the scribes say Elijah's going to come back. Is that kind of what's going on here? I, that, it's easy to think that's what's happening, but it's not. They, they have a very, very good reason, a very particular reason for asking why Elijah might be uh, said to come back before the coming of, of the Messiah. If you think about it, uh, this, this question makes a lot of sense when you consider the misconceptions that, that abounded even among the disciples about what Christ had come to do. And if you think about it, this is really a question of eschatology, isn't it? That's another big $10 theological word, right? A study of the end times. Um, do we in the church today ever have confusion and disagreement over eschatological end times questions? No, right? We're all, all the church throughout the last 2,000 years has been in singing kumbaya and, and agreement on all things eschatological. Nobody ever possibly divides over that subject, right? You know, we, we sometimes tend to think that we're the only ones in a lot of things, but that have had confusion and disagreement over issues related to the end times. We act like that's a recent invention, but it's not. It's always been an issue, and it was the issue, I think, here in Mark chapter 9, in the context that they were, were in. You know, what was the biggest thing foretold that was to be future to come in the entire Old Testament? Not a hard question. Really, there's two things, but what, they're both related. What was the biggest thing that they were waiting on, the next big thing, and the biggest thing foretold and prophesied in the entire Old Testament? It was the coming of the Messiah. 
If there, if, if you, it's not a stretch to say that's what the entire Old Testament pointed to. We, we say it in a different way. You know, we say the, the entire Bible and the entire Old Testament is Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. Well, that's true. But it, when you say it's Christ-centered, what are you saying? It's about the Messiah. Christ is Greek for, for the word Messiah. So that we just sometimes say words and don't think about what we're saying or what, what those words mean. Well, the coming of the Messiah was the biggest thing all throughout the Old Testament. And so it was the, to them, this was eschatological. Can't even say the word this morning. So this is, this is what they're dealing with, a question of eschatology of the end times. Well, the scribes had been teaching that the prophet Elijah was going to come back from heaven before the Messiah would come. And interesting to, to see that in verse 12, Jesus actually says they weren't wrong. At least they weren't wrong about that detail. That if they were telling the, the disciples and others that, that Elijah was to come back, uh, they actually had that right. And why, why did they teach that? Where did they find that in their Old Testaments? If you want to look at Malachi, the last book in our English Old Testament, Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, this is the end of the Old Testament in our Bibles. It says, Behold, Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Seems pretty cut and dry. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So, in some sense, the last prophecy in the Old Testament, at least in our English the way the English Bible orders the books is different than the Hebrew order, uh, is, is that, the, that Elijah, the one who had not died, was going to come back, and he was going to come back as a sign. Uh, it would be the, the, right before the coming of, of the Messiah. You might recall, as I've mentioned, that Elijah never died. Bible quiz, who were the two people in the Old Testament that never actually died? Enoch, who was a friend of God and, took, and God took him. He did not die. And the second one is Elijah. How did, what happened to Elijah? Elijah was taken up into heaven by the Lord in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. 2 Kings 2 verse 11. I mean, think about what that must have looked like. It's hard to imagine a more dramatic exit stage left uh, than, than that. The only thing I could think of that's more dramatic is Christ's own ascension in the book of Acts. In Acts 1 verse, verse 9. In some ways, Elijah almost seems more impressive you know, you've got this, these chariots of fire coming down. I mean, it, it looked, it was a spectacle. And this whirlwind, I don't know what it looked like, a tornado, we don't know. And all of a sudden, there goes Elijah, whisked off. And Eli, Elisha is stuck uh, taking the baton and, and running with it as, as the new version, so to speak, of, of Elijah. Well, just as Elijah never died, but was taken up into heaven by the Lord, even so he was to return. In other words, God didn't just take him to take him. He's, his work wasn't yet done. And so he was going to come back before Christ, uh, before the coming of, of Christ. He was coming to, ba- he was to come back before the day, the day of, of the Lord, before the coming of the Messiah, before the coming of the Messianic age. Elijah was to come back. So Jesus actually tells them, yeah, they got that right. Those scribes that are always giving us trouble, they had that part right. Malachi himself had, had foretold it. Well, the next thing that we should take note of in our text is what that's about. The return of, of Elijah. What does it mean that Elijah must return? Well, the scribes taught that he was supposed to come back before the Messiah came. 
And what did Jesus say about that in verses 12 to 13? It says, And he said to them, the disciples, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Verses 12 and 13. So the first thing we've already pointed out, but we should notice and be careful to notice that the scribes weren't all wrong. They had the details in some sense about the coming of the Messiah and his forerunner. They had those correct. Think about this. I mean, it's kind of a sobering thought. They knew Elijah was to come back before the coming of the Messiah. They knew that. They knew that Elijah was to come back as the forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. And yet, what does Jesus say that they did when, when Elijah came? It says, they did to him, verse 13, they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. It's kind of a, a sobering thought. It, you know, it reminds me of, of Herod. Remember Herod? Uh, Herod himself, he said, the, the wise men show up, and what does he do? He asks his own, the scribes and, and the Pharisees and whatnot, you know, what, is, what, is the, what does the Bible say? He didn't say the word Bible, but you know, what, what do the scriptures say about it? Where is, the, where is the Christ to be born? Finds out from them the right answer, but what does he do with that answer? Does he go and do what they did? Does he go and worship at the side of that, that uh, manger? No. He tries to have him killed. He does everything in his power to wipe out the competition. That's the way that he, that's the way that he saw it. The, the scribes taught the right things. They understood that, that Elijah was to come back, but when, when he came, not only did they not recognize him, they raged against him. They rejected him. And if they rejected the forerunner of the Messiah, what was to be their response to the Messiah himself? You know, the Bible says, I think in many different ways, that you can know and, quote, believe the right things and yet not know the Lord at all. The scribes knew their Old Testament. They, they knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. They knew them like the back of their hands. And yet when the Messiah came, when his forerunner came, they, they rejected him. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Good job. You're monotheist. Congratulations. Uh, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, you think about the scripture text that, that, that Dan read this morning from Isaiah 44 and Isaiah mocking the idols. You know, it, you could picture a lot of folks like the scribes, if they were listening to that text being read, would have been like, well, that's not us. We, you know, we're, we, we know there's one God. And what does James say? Hey, good job. You want a medal or a chest to pin it on? You don't actually know the Lord. Even demons, do demons know Correct theology. They know it better than I do. They know it better than you do. Did the Satan know the Bible? If you read the temptation of Christ in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and the beginning of Mark's gospel, you know that he does. They know the scripture. They know the scripture of God. They don't know the God of scripture. And that's a, a warning for, for everyone in our day as well. They were the teachers of Israel. They knew the Old Testament. And yet they knew his forerunner who was to come in the mantle of, of Elijah and yet they rejected him. Just as Elijah suffered at the hands of an unbelieving king in Israel, King Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel, in 1 Kings 19 and other places talks about that, 
In the same way, John the Baptist, who was the fulfillment of the return of Elijah, suffered and was killed by King Herod and his wicked wife Herodias. It's like a do-over. It's almost as if the, the circumstances were meant to point. The similarity between the two, other than Elijah not dying, was supposed to be a hint. Just as, as John the Baptist, we've seen in earlier chapters of Mark, just as John the Baptist wore Elijah's uniform, so to speak, his prophetic uniform. Remember, he, he wore a coat of what? Camel's hair and a leather belt and ate locusts and wild honey. Um, he, he wore the same thing Elijah wore. It was supposed to be a hint. When you think of the story of Elijah being taken up to heaven, and who takes his place? Somebody whose name even sounds like his name. Elisha. And how did Elijah, how do we know Elijah took the baton from Elijah? He took up his, we get the saying from it, took up his mantle. It was as if God was teaching us already in the Old Testament that when I say Elijah is going to come back, it doesn't have to be Elijah himself. It can be one that takes up the proverbial mantle of Elijah, which is exactly what, what happened. Why was Elijah to return before the day of the Lord and the coming of the Messiah? What was Elijah's purpose in coming back in all of that? Jesus, in verse 12, describes it as, quote, restoring, as restoring all things. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, says that he was the one that was going to prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi describes him, in the verse we read a little while ago, describes him as coming to what? Turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, when he says turn the hearts, what's he talking about? Repentance. What was John the Baptist's message in the wilderness? He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It, it's, it couldn't be more black and white and more plain what John the Baptist came to do. You know, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, I know we've gone through it for a while, read through the Gospel of Mark, and it, it, it kind of jumps off the page, but if you're very familiar with the Bible, sometimes we, we miss things, we don't notice things. John the Baptist and Elijah, in some way or another, are all through the Gospel of Mark. You know, we, we talk about Jesus saying Elijah does come first. Elijah kind of comes first in the Gospel of Mark. Right out of the chute. In the first chapter, you know, the first few verses, all of a sudden, who do you see first? John the Baptist. That's not an accident. John the Baptist is a very important figure in the coming of, of the Messiah. Well, the last thing, and probably the main thing to see here in our text, is the sufferings of Christ as they are related and typified in some sense by the suffering of Elijah. That, that's really the point all throughout the Gospel of Mark from here on out. It's been hinted at before, but the sufferings of Christ are the main theme throughout the rest of Mark's Gospel. What does he say in verse 12? And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, he's saying, Jesus understands exactly what they're asking, of course. They're saying, hey, if Elijah's supposed to come first before you come as the Messiah, dot, 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 how is it that you're going to suffer? And Jesus tells him, they're right. The scribes are right. Elijah does come first. And then he says, and how or but how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? How does the one go with the other? If Elijah came, how is the Son of Man going, going to suffer? How is he going to be treated with contempt? 
How can the scripture say such a thing? That's exactly what he's saying. How is it written? How can the Old Testament, and where does the Old Testament speak of a Messiah who suffers? Of a Messiah who is rejected? Isaiah 53 is the place that comes to mind. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what Isaiah has to say. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's the, what's, what's the implication? We can't find anybody. People aren't, aren't believing what they're being told. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And here it is, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, and here's the word again, he was despised, and we, not they, we dis, uh, esteemed him not. Isaiah foretold, not only of Christ himself, but of the rejection of Christ, that he was despised and rejected in a man of sorrows. That is what the disciples and many others had very much difficulty understanding. They couldn't see how that added up. The coming of the Christ was supposed to be something filled with glory, something filled with with, with Israel being restored to her to her glory days, to the to her, her best her best days, her best fortunes, and yet what actually happens to both Elijah in the form of John the Baptist as well as Christ Himself, well, he's, he suffers, and he keeps telling them, I'm going to be killed, and they had trouble grasping it. And I think the question about Elijah starts to make more sense now. You can see the dots that they're connecting, even if we might be slow ourselves to connect them reading the text. One commentator put it this way, and I found this to be a very helpful way of summarizing it. He says, no doubt the fact that three of them had seen Elijah at the transfiguration reminded them of what the teachers of the law said about him, about, about Elijah. In other words, that he would come before the Messiah and restore all things. Restoring all things involved, among other things, leading the people to repentance. Now, if Elijah comes first and does his preparatory work, how is it that when the Son of Man comes, he finds people so unprepared for him that they completely reject him and indeed kill him? The disciples are saying, you know, if, if Elijah came, the people don't seem much restored. They don't seem like many people have repented and have been prepared to believe in the Messiah. The, the idea of, this, of the Messiah stu- suffering, a suffering Messiah to them, and it always has been, was, was a stumbling block for them. They couldn't quite grasp how that was possible, even though the Old Testament holds forth that, that image. How could the Messiah, how could Jesus be rejected and killed by his own people if Elijah comes first and restores all things and turns the people from their, their sins? Well, if you think about it, 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 it sounds like a logical question, but there's really no salvation for sinners like us apart from his sufferings. There's no, there's no shortcut in the gospel without Christ's suffering and death and resurrection in our place we don't get to partake in God's glory at all. There is no glory days to come without the cross of Christ. First, Isaiah 53 goes on in verses 4 to 6 to say this about that one who was despised and rejected by men. 
Surely, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs, not his own, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we saw, we, in a sense, see his sufferings, and we think it's, it's his own fault. He's suffering for something that he has done, even though that's not the case. It says, but he was pierced for what? For our transgressions he was crushed, for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all Christ's sufferings had to happen for any sinner to be saved is the suffering of Christ a stumbling block to you maybe it's not the way that it was for the disciples we're not living in the same time or the same context. We're not physically following him. We're not thinking of, of suffering to come. But uh, is, the, is the way of the cross a stumbling block to you? Naturally, it is. I think we all react against the way of the cross. And Christ doesn't just tell the disciples, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. That, he's talking to us there, too. Anyone, any time before his second coming who would follow him, well, the way to follow him is the way of, of the cross. Let that be a, a lesson for us. The way of discipleship, the way of following Jesus Christ is the way of the cross. There's, there's no way of avoiding that. It's what he calls us to. Glory, glory is sure to follow if you were in Christ, but there's no, short, there's no shortcut that, that bypasses the way of, of suffering, the way of the cross comes first. Romans 8, we'll close with this, Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided what? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glory is not now. Glory is to come. We will participate in the glory of Christ by God's grace, just like Moses and Elijah did on that mountain. And yet the cross comes first, and the way of the cross comes first. And Paul, Paul finishes that in verse 18 and says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If, if you're a Christian this morning, and I trust that you all are, if you're a believer in Christ... Uh, you are called to glory. One day, as hard as this is to fathom, you and I in Christ will, will share in Christ's glory. You, we will be, Paul says it right there, glorified with him. That's an amazing promise. But what does he say before that? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We, we are going to share in his likeness, both in his suffering in this life and then in his glory to come. And what Paul and, and, and really all of Scripture, I think, would have us to understand is that just what he says in verse 18, the glory that is going to be yours in Christ one day is going to, it, it doesn't, the sufferings that we go through now, even those who are martyred, as Christian prayed earlier in his, in his prayer, those who are suffering physical persecution in this world, being imprisoned, beaten, even killed for the, the name of Christ and their profession of the name of Christ, as bad as that is, the glory that, in a sense, that same glory that overwhelmed and, and, and terrified the disciples, they will, they will share in that glory to such a degree that their sufferings won't even be on the radar screen. They don't even compare with it. 
That's how great that glory is. That's what we are promised in Christ if you are in Christ by faith. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we, we know that we are very much like the disciples. We are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That we read, we read your Bible, we read your scriptures, and we sometimes still misunderstand and scratch our heads. And, and very often it's, it's just like them. It's not because it's difficult to, to grasp a concept or a truth, but it's that we have a difficult time accepting sometimes what we read there, what we hear written in your word, that we are called not only to believe, but to suffer for the sake of Christ in this life for a short time. And that even those things, you make them work together for our good and for your glory, even for our salvation in Christ. And we thank you that just as Christ uh, despised the shame uh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, that, that he saw the glory that was to come, not even just for himself, but for us as well, by your grace, we ask that you would help us to, to think much on the glory of Christ and on the promise of sharing in his glory one day when he returns and that that would, that would cause us to be willing to follow your son even now in the path of suffering, whatever suffering may in your providence be in, in front of us, that we would endure it and look to Christ in his glory. We thank you that one day we will share in that. We also look at these scribes teaching about about Christ and, and his forerunner, Elijah, to come. And we, we shudder to think that, that one can understand so many things and yet not truly understand and know you and believe. And we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have emulated that as well and that you would make us grow in our understanding, help us look to Christ for all things. And we pray that he be glorified in all that we do and in all that we go through from faith in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.